My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life, in your own context, to refocus on the story of Jesus. jumping around a little bit for this one. Uh, we're going to read 15, 20 through 26, and then 51 through 55. Chapter 15. Chapter 15. If the page number is easier, it's page 1,790 in the Pew Bible. 1,790, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ first, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jumping now to verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the death will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortality with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written in Isaiah will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. To begin this morning, I have uh, two short stories that I want to share with you. Um, it probably won't be super clear what they have to do with anything initially, uh, but they're going to come back around. So it's just one of those times you have to trust me a little bit. The first story is about an Easter Sunday a couple years ago when I was a divinity student and I was interning at a church um, outside Durham, helping with a youth group. And this church, it's one of those older originally rural churches. The city had sort of grown up around it, but it was first built. It was built in the middle of like cornfields or something. It's one of those older, formerly rural churches that has a uh, graveyard right beside the church. You know the kind of church that I'm talking about. Um, I, I've always had kind of mixed feelings about this setup. Um, on the one hand, there, there really is some kind of somber beauty to it, right? The, the graves and the tombstones and the flowers right next to the sanctuary where we proclaim the, the resurrected Lord and take communion and worship. But uh, And so there's something beautiful about that juxtaposition, but on the other hand, it is a bit macabre, it's a bit melancholy, right? There's just always that, that specter of death sitting right there, and um, I've often wondered how church members who have had a family member pass away, I wonder how they feel about having to walk by the memorial to their loved one every Sunday on the way into church. But anyway, this church took wonderful care of this graveyard. There was always some fresh flowers on the gravestones. The, the, the grass was only ever allowed to grow so high. It was beautifully, even lovingly manicured. It was like a golf course. Um, and you could just tell that the members of the church took a lot of pride in it. 
And at our youth meeting that Easter Sunday, the young, the youth pastor that I was shadowing announced that before we were going to have our Bible lesson, we were going to play Kick the Can. Um, does, do y'all know what Kick the Can is? People play Kick the Can, it's still a thing, right? It's like hide and seek, but with some extra elements. You can get sent to jail, kick the can. It's not super important. But he announced that the youth group, which is a group of 30 to 40 middle school and high school students uh, at this church, was going to play Kick the Can right in the middle of the church graveyard. And yeah, what do you, what do y'all think of that? Initially, I was initially I was horrified uh, because I knew the some of the gentlemen and some of the the ladies on the the graveyard maintenance committee. I knew how hard they worked to keep the gravestones spotless and the grass smooth and pretty. I I also knew our youth members and they were animals. Uh, the the majority of teenagers are. It's not their fault. They can't help it. But. Uh, I pictured them tearing the place apart, and I imagined my mentor and I getting dragged before the trustees committee on Wednesday or Thursday and just getting chewed out. It did not seem like a good idea to me at all. But we did. We played kick the can right in the middle of the graveyard, and it was a great time. Kids were they were crouching behind these ornate stone benches. They were literally vaulting, jumping over tombstones, and uh, they were sliding through spring green grass, uh, trying to avoid being caught, just laughing and running and flirting all in the middle of this, of this cemetery. And we were done. When we were done, the, gro- the grounds looked different, uh, to say the least. We had made some serious divots in the bright green grass. There was dirt and mud all over some of the monuments. It was a mess. And I remember looking at my, my mentor and thinking, well, I mean, that was a great time, but did you just get us in like serious trouble? Um, but he didn't, he didn't seem too worried. The second story is from December 30th, 1986. And it's the story of the second greatest piece of trash talk that I am personally aware of. Uh, Larry Bird and his Boston Celtics are playing the Seattle Supersonics and the game has come down to the wire. They're eight seconds on the clock. The Celtics just took a timeout, uh, and they're about to take an inbounds pass. They're down one point. And when the Celtics break from their timeout, Larry Bird walks up to Xavier McDaniel, and uh, that's the guy who's been guarding him the whole night. And McDaniel is no slouch. The previous year, he came second in Rookie of the Year voting, um, losing out only to Patrick Ewing. So he's pretty good. And Bird says to McDaniel, he says, hey man, this is what's going to happen. I'm getting the ball. I'm going around a screen, and I'm going to hit the game-winning shot right in your face. That's what's going to happen. I just want to let you know. Needless to say, uh, that's not something most basketball coaches want you to do, coming out of a strategic, crucial timeout. But sure enough, Larry Legend, he gets the ball, he flies around the screen, and he hits the shot right over the outstretched fingers of Xavier McDaniel. And as he backpedals down the court, he yells to him and to the rest of the Supersonics, he yells, well, well, dang it, I did not mean to leave two seconds on the clock there. Uh, That's just, that is cold-blooded. It doesn't get any more brutal and confident than that. Uh, the, the great trash talkers throughout sports history, they can just tear you apart mentally because when you make those kind of statements and you can back them up, there's just no more efficient way and humiliating way to let someone know that they're, they're just not in your league and they, they don't stand a chance. They, they might as well give up. Okay, it, it is Easter. It's Easter morning. So uh, let's read an obscure genealogy from Genesis 5, right? I mean, what else would you do on Easter? Um, Y'all are a very understanding and generous church. Uh, when I sent the order of worship to Carol this week and told her that I wanted to open our Easter service by reading about Enosh, Canaan, and Mahalalel, didn't object at all. No pushback. And I think I only saw maybe a couple skeptical looks out there this morning when I started reading our Old Testament reading. Um, I actually spent a lot of time reading and reciting Genesis 5 in Divinity School when I was first learning Hebrew because 
Uh, it's one of the best ways to get a handle on Hebrew numbers, you know, with the, all those. And he lived for 565 years and all that kind of stuff. You, got, you just pick it up pretty quick. And along with all the numbers, you probably notice that this chapter is extremely formulaic. We hear how long some guy, Enosh, for example, lived before he begat his firstborn son, his heir. Then we hear how long he lived after he begat his heir. And then he has sons and daughters. And each little cycle concludes with, and he died. In fact, this pattern is so predictable that Becca actually started picking up on it as I recited the verses in Hebrew in our tiny little apartment. Uh, the Hebrew phrase for, and he died, is, is pretty distinctive. It is, vayamot, vayamot. And so Becca, even from like the next room and not knowing a lick of biblical Hebrew, would hear me approaching the end of one of these cycles. And she would join you from the other room and shout out, Vayamot. And he died. And this became one of our very first sort of married people inside jokes that's not funny to anybody outside of the two of us. And, you know, in the future someday, maybe we'll have a kid that, like, gets a goldfish that he doesn't take care of and he dies. And you have to have, like, a dramatic funeral or something. And, like, sometime during that process, Beck and I will lock eyes and just be like, And he died. And it is, it's admittedly a pretty bleak little inside joke, I will, I will say. It's super bleak, actually, when you consider where in the story of the Bible Genesis 5 takes place. Uh, just a few chapters earlier, death was not even a thing for, for humans, for goldfish, for, for anything. Human, humanity just existed in the garden with God, walking with him throughout the afternoon breeze, enjoying the fruits of the garden, just existing in harmony with creation and with their creator, exactly how it was meant to be. And... I, theoretically, it could have just continued like that, right? Forever. Just unbreaking bliss. But we know how the story goes. Humanity fell. Sin, brokenness, and death entered the world. And suddenly, in place of this beautiful, peaceful constancy of Genesis 2, the human life begins to fit a very particular and predictable pattern. You're born. You live a certain amount of years. Maybe you have some sons and daughters. And then you die. It doesn't matter how those intervening years are filled. It doesn't matter how much money or power or influence you gather. At the end of it, you face the undefeated and undefeatable foe. And what's terrible about this is that we were created to live forever. God, when he fashioned the human soul, did not intend to create something that expired. And the fact that all of our stories end with Vayamot, and he died, or then she died, all of us succumbing to this unwanted character, this adversary. That's not how it was supposed to be. And we can actually tell. We can feel that. It weighs on us because we were designed to live forever. The poet in the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, puts it as this. He says, God has put eternity in our hearts. We have relationships that feel like they should just keep on going forever and ever. Marriages, friendships, family, uh, that they last decades and decades, and it feels like they can't just end. That person just can't be gone. Um, Another angle of this is like, we want to know what happens, don't we? Like, do you, do you feel this? Like, you know, we humans, will we ever live on other planets? Is that a thing that's going to happen? I want to know that. But unless technology really speeds up, I'm almost definitely not going to be here. And that feels like wrong. I'm just going to miss it. It's just going to be gone. I can't be right. I can't be gone. It just can't all end. And, and this is the human condition, isn't it? Poets and artists and theologians have been wrestling with this dynamic for forever. We have eternity in our hearts but we can't beat death. We all die. 
I was talking with a gentleman at a funeral a few years ago. Um, I think it was the same internship. Um, and this funeral was for the gentleman's sister. And he told me about how when he was growing up, he was one of eight siblings. But now he was the last living member of his immediate family. And most of his friends had passed away as well. And he had seen this seemingly unbreakable pattern just repeat itself over and over again. You live a while, you do some things, you build some relationships, and then you die via moat. Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, we're introduced to a guy named Enoch. And his pattern begins the same as all the others. He lives a certain amount of years before he has an heir. And then verse 23 begins, and all the days of Enoch were, and the pattern seems to continue. It seems like we are headed right toward the same ending as all of the others. In Hebrew, the verb comes first, before the subject. So the break in the pattern is like is jarring. There is not, and he died. And walked Enoch with God. And then he was not, for God took him. This, this is an Easter story. This is an Easter text, y'all. Because this is the first hint in the Bible, the first suggestion that perhaps God was not simply contempt to just allow death to reign forever and without end. This broken pattern, all the way back in Genesis 5, is Easter hope. Fast forward 6,000 years and 2,000 pages or so, and you're at the very first Holy Saturday, and Seth's great, 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 etc. grandson seems to have followed the same pattern of Enon, Canaan, and Mahalalel. Uh, Jesus is lying in a grave behind a massive tombstone. Um, his friends and his disciples, they're distraught. Uh, not, not necessarily because he thought they would break this, because he thought they would break this pattern. The, the reaction at the end of our reading from Mark today makes it clear that they were not immediately expecting an empty tomb. Um, in fact, I picture them wandering sort of listlessly and aimlessly about Jerusalem on Saturday, not quite sure what they were hoping for. Uh, maybe, maybe that he would help them overthrow Rome. Maybe that he would reform the Jewish religious tradition, take on those Pharisees and those Sadducees. Maybe simply they would have a long and full life of teaching and healing. But they were definitely hoping for more. They were crushed when it seemed as if he had followed that same pattern as all of their ancestors. By a moat, he died. Sometimes people are actually confused by the ending of Mark's gospel, which we read today. Uh, in Mark's gospel, those who discover the empty tomb, they don't rejoice, they don't celebrate, they, they run away, terrified. And I think why this feels strange to us is sometimes we just assume that those that discovered the empty tomb on Easter morning, they knew everything that we knew, that this was a glorious victory. But all they knew was that the most predictable pattern in human life, that dead bodies stay dead, suddenly seemed to be broken. And they did not know what it meant, and it understandably shook them to the core. Our final reading for this morning is from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And Paul is a very interesting guy because Paul is the first great Christian theologian. His role in the Bible is very unique. You know, a lot of the Bible tells us stories about events, right? The story of God and Israel, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But Paul in his letters is looking back at these events and is trying to tell us what they mean, trying to interpret them for the early church and for us so that we don't have to be confused as the woman of the well or the woman at the, the tomb that discovered the empty tomb the first Easter morning. And 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 is God's most, ex or Paul's most extensive and detailed discussion of the resurrection. What does it mean that the tomb was empty, that Christ was raised from the dead? And y'all, it, it's a great chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, if you ever need to pick me up, you just go read 1 Corinthians 15 for an hour. Let me just reread some of it to you in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then once he comes, those who belong to him. What Paul is saying here is because Jesus was willing to descend even to the point of death on a cross, because he took death into his own being and then defeated death, he swallowed it, he subsumed it, it was no match for his glory. Because of this, because of the empty tomb, not only is the pattern broken, like it was with Enoch, but it's actually reversed. It starts moving backwards. Because Jesus did die, by a moat, but then he was raised. And he was just the first. All who belong to Jesus will follow after him. They will die, but then they will live. The dead come back to life. All of death's gains, all of death's victims released, freed on account of the work of Jesus. Near the end of chapter 15, Paul gives us some more details. Um, At the end of days, he says, we're all going to be changed in an instant. Our perishable bodies, our bodies that break down, that get sick and that die, they're going to be clothed in what is imperishable. And our physical mortal bodies are going to take on immortality. And once this has taken place, Paul says, that saying from Isaiah, it's going to be fulfilled. Finally, death is swallowed up in victory. And Paul concludes by addressing death directly. He says to death, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Do y'all know what that is? That last verse I just read? That is the greatest piece of trash talk that has ever existed in all of everything. That is trash talk. Paul is is trash talking death. He's not trash talking a rookie of the year runner up. Death, the specter of of death that that has followed humanity throughout history, has caused so much fear and anxiety and suffering. Paul is trash talking it on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Death, you're, you're no match for Jesus. Death, Jesus is just so far out of your league, and you thought that you had him. You admitted death. You thought that you had him, just like you did Adam and Seth and Moses and Enan and Canaan and Mahalalel, but you didn't. And Enoch, you figured Enoch was just some weird exception, but it wasn't. It was your hint. It was your hint, death, that God had not just given over all of humanity and creation to you forever. No, you never actually even had the lead that you thought you did. This was the plan the entire time. And all of those victims that you've claimed for thousands and thousands of years are friends and family members and me. Yeah, you're going to get me too one day, death. But one day, Jesus is taking them all back. The perishable will be clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with the immortality. Where, O oh death, is that victory? Where, O oh death, is that sting? We, we never did get in trouble with the uh, trustees or the graveyard maintenance committee, uh, me and my mentor from, from the church outside of Durham. Um, after our raucous Easter morning game of kick the can right in the middle of that immaculate graveyard, because uh, my mentor, I guess, didn't feel the need to divulge this information to me, but apparently that was a yearly tradition, and the whole congregation was on board with it. Because at this church, on Easter morning, the youth group jumps and runs and laughs and flirts right there in the middle of all the tombs, even if it means that there's going to be a lot of cleaning to be done the next week. And I, I love that. I, I, I love it. Because it's trash talk. Christ is risen. The pattern has been reversed. 
Those that are under the stones are just waiting to be reunited with those that are still in the pews. Death has lost its sting. Death has no victory. There's, just, there's no reason for a church graveyard to be a, a staid and proper and, and somber and melancholy monument. Now let's, let's run around a little bit. Let's play. Let's have fun. Right in the middle of this place that to the world represents the end. That to the world represents death's undefeated record. But because Christ is risen, because the general resurrection is coming, because death has been defeated. Yeah, let's play kick the can in the middle of the graveyard. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.